Black Missing and Missing is dedicated to the Black women, men, and children whose stories are missing from the media and oftentimes missing the justice they deserve. Alone, scared, and hunted like an animal. Those were the last moments of life for 20-year-old Carol Jenkins as she attempted to sell encyclopedias door-to-door in the infamous sundown town of Martinsville, Indiana. It would take more than 30 years before her killer was finally revealed, though her family would never receive justice. Hello, and thank you for joining me for the third episode of Black Missing and Missing. Today, tonight, whatever time it is, wherever you are, we will be discussing the $7 secret, the murder of Carol Jenkins. The events of this case took place back in 1968. So if we take a little trip back through the history of the United States, we'll find that much like current times, 1968 was a year highlighted by protests and other unrest. The 1960s were a tumultuous time. Not only was the United States embroiled in a divisive war in Vietnam, but people right here in the land of the free were fighting and dying for basic human rights, for their civil rights. And there would be no fight to fight if not for those who were opposed to the equality and basic human rights for all. Two major events in the civil rights movement were the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in April of 1968 and LBJ's signing of the Civil Rights Act into law just days later. Now, in what should come as absolutely no surprise to anyone, the Civil Rights Act caused quite the controversy. Opponents argued that it infringed on states' rights Now, when in history have we heard that one before? And it would force individuals to have to interact with undesirables, also known as, but not limited to, Negroes. Racial segregation between blacks and whites was the way of life in the Southern United States. And it was enforced by a collective body of laws known as Jim Crow. Now let's learn a few fun facts about Jim Crow. The name is derived from a minstrel act in which grossly exaggerated features of the African phenotype and vile stereotypes are depicted for entertainment purposes. This particular minstrel act was known as Jump Jim Crow, with Jim Crow being a racial epithet used against black people. The Jim Crow era began in 1877, right at the tail end of the Reconstruction era following the Civil War. It lasted officially until 1965, but of course we know the effects have reverberated for decades. This form of systemic racism was so well thought out and executed that it served as the blueprint for Nazi Germany and apartheid South Africa. Now while Jim Crow was the law of the land in the South, it didn't mean that the rest of the country was a haven for post-racial bliss. Indiana, in particular, is known as the northernmost southern state. Now, geographically, Indiana is one of the United States' 12 Midwestern states. But culturally, 
it's more in line with the South. And I'm not just talking sweet tea and hey, y'all. At one point, Indiana was home to the largest KKK organization in the country, with more than 250,000 active members. Among the proud members were over half of the state legislature. So to give you a breakdown of what that looked like, according to Wikipedia, more than half of the Indiana General Assembly and a large percentage of local offices were occupied by members of the KKK. One-time Governor Edward L. Jackson was at the very least very heavily Klan-affiliated. So remember that when someone tries to argue that racism is not systemic. It wasn't until D.C. Stevenson, the Grand Dragon of Indiana, was convicted of the rape and murder of a young white woman that KKK membership dwindled. And although the numbers were smaller, the same ideology that allowed people to join in the first place, belief in white supremacy, hatred of black people and others without Anglo-Saxon roots, nativism, uh, foolishness, stupidity, etc., all remained in much of Indiana. Therefore, it's easy to see how Carol Jenkins met her fate. She was pretty, and she always looked so neat. Those were the words Carolyn Easton used in recalling her niece, Carol Jenkins. Like most 20-year-olds, she was full of life with a bright future and had many aspirations. One in particular was of leaving her small Indiana town for the bright lights of Chicago four hours north and becoming a model. Carol lived in Rushville with her family and was the oldest of six siblings who included Larry, Patricia, Paulette, Robert, and Laura. Her parents were Elizabeth and Paul Davis. Carol was a small child when her mother met Paul, and after the two married, he loved and raised Carol as his own, saying in an interview that she was, quote, my stepdaughter, but she was my oldest child, end quote. He said she was a daddy's girl who never gave him any trouble growing up. Elizabeth and Paul would eventually divorce, and she would marry a man named Jean Scott. Together, they adopted a boy named Philip, who was a baby the year Carol was murdered. The rest of the family and friends regarded her in a special light. Many of them described her as a sweet, pretty, and shy girl. Her brother Larry, younger by three years, said she was caring, loving, and affectionate towards everyone. Paul also said that it was in her nature to not to want to impose upon anyone. Carol graduated from Rushville High School in 1965. According to her mother, Elizabeth, she loved teaching small children, and another one of her aspirations was to become a school teacher. While pursuing that dream, She started working at a plant run by Philco, which was a division of Ford Motor Company, responsible for manufacturing electronics. When the plant shut down temporarily due to a union strike, Carol took a job with Collier's Encyclopedia as a door-to-door saleswoman. Carol's first day working for Collier's, 
September 16, 1968, would also be the last day of her life. It's been reported that she didn't want to get out of bed that day or at least had some hesitancy about going to work. Her brother Larry, however, had a talk with her and gave her the encouragement and motivation to go out and tackle the day. As a young woman who took pride in her appearance, she wanted to make a good impression, so Carol chose her outfit carefully. After changing her original outfit, she decided upon a white cotton turtleneck sweater, olive green wool slacks, and a yellow scarf. Later that day, Carol would meet up with three of her new co-workers, 30-year-old Stan Julian, who was the manager, and 20-year-old John Burton, both white men, and Paula Bradley, a 19-year-old black woman who is also from Rushville. The plan was for the four of them to ride together to Vincennes, a small city south of Rushville. Paul claimed that Stan later told him the group became lost en route to Vincennes, but the original consensus from most sources is that because the group got such a late start, it would be pointless to make the trip to Vincennes, which is a three-hour car ride one way. The original plan was scrapped, and it was decided that the group would travel an hour and a half west to Martinsville, which, as you'll find out, has a reputation that precedes itself. According to Carol's co-worker Paula, upon learning they'd be taking a trip to Martinsville, the two of them somewhat jokingly wondered if they needed to take weapons with them, specifically tear gas guns. Multiple sources claimed that Carol agreed to make the trip to Martinsville out of the desire to impress her boss. Paul's statements contradict those claims. In an article in the Columbus Republic, Paul said, quote, Carol knew Martinsville wasn't safe. If she'd known it ahead of time, she wouldn't have gone there, end quote. Just the previous year, Larry accompanied a group of fellow high schoolers to watch a football game in Martinsville, a town with an all-white population. The most memorable of that night's events were the chants of, Get that nigger! and Get that darky! Black people knew to avoid Martinsville and made sure to plan their trips so that there would be no reason to travel to Martinsville. What was known to all, but unspoken of by many, was that Martinsville, Indiana, was a sundown town. Now, I can just hear those of you who don't know asking, what's a sundown town? A sundown town is one with a white population, which excludes black people after dark. In the days of yore, a municipality would make itself known as a sundown town by posting signs. The signs might have messages as friendly as, whites only after 6 p.m., or the more direct and less friendly, don't let the sun set on your black ass. Other towns used bells to signal the time that black people needed to vacate. You may have heard of the Green Book, or more specifically, the Negro Motorist Green Book. It was published annually, and the purpose was to keep black travelers informed 
about which towns were not only convenient, but safe for them to travel to. Can you imagine that on top of all the other things you have to be aware of when taking a road trip, like um, making sure your car is in running condition, not breaking down finances, etc. You also have to be burdened with wondering, where can I go that I won't be denied food or lodging to, if I enter this town, will I make it out alive? All based on the color of your skin. And it wasn't always just Black people. Some towns excluded Mexicans specifically, or Native Americans, Jews, or immigrants, even those from certain European countries. Do sundown towns still exist? Effectively, yes. While the signs may have come down because it's not a good look and furthermore illegal, it's easier to take down signs than it is to open minds. And although more laws have been made to end discriminatory practices, the attitudes and traditions continue. The town of Minden, Nevada, which is located less than 50 miles south of Reno and a mere 15 miles south of the capital city, sounded a siren every day at 6 p.m. as part of an ordinance banning Native Americans from the town after dark. The ordinance ended in 1974, but to this very day, as of 2021, the siren still sounds at 6 p.m. daily. Of course, to those who weren't victims of this discrimination, the siren continuing to sound isn't at all a relic of a racist past. It's a simple comforting reminder that the day is done and it's time to go home. Excuse me for a moment. Bullshit. Excuse me. When you're not the one affected, it's very easy to deny the presence of bigotry. Anyway, back to the case. It was 4.30 p.m. and foggy and damp when the group Carol was with arrived in Martinsville. A decision was made for the group to split up and canvas a neighborhood east of the downtown area with instructions to meet at a gas station at 10 p.m., Carol set out on her own. Carol and Easton, one of her aunts, would later say, quote, There she was in a town where she didn't know anybody, and it was dark. She had to be so scared. If it were me, I'd just be so scared, end quote. This entire scenario really bothers me. I'm not placing blame on Carol or the other young woman, and it isn't fair to place blame on Carol's boss because ultimately all blame is placed on whoever took her life. But I do have questions. Why did they get such a late start? Was that typical to, to start so late in the afternoon? Uh, why wasn't the decision made to use the buddy system instead of walking alone, especially given that they were going to be out so late? And why was it necessary to be out selling encyclopedias door to door until around 10 p.m., especially in a town that was unfamiliar to at least two members of the group, and with both of those members being women, especially black women? I'm really curious as to whether or not Stan was from the area. I'm wondering if he was a newcomer who was unfamiliar with Martinsville 
and its relationship with Black people? Or did he know and just brush it off, similar to the way that people will oftentimes downplay the racism of their racist family members by making excuses such as, oh, he's harmless, he's not really racist, or he was raised in a different time. Maybe he thought that the women would be safe in Martinsville because he'd never had any trouble there, or he knew people from Martinsville and they were good people. So again, I'm not placing blame on anyone other than the people who killed Carol, and I'm unaware of any statements or interviews that Stan may have given. Newlyweds Don and Norma Neal were at home that evening when they heard a knock on the door around 7.30. Upon answering the door, Norma was met by a young woman in distress. Please help. Please let me in. I'm being followed and harassed by two men in a car, the young woman explained. Norma said she didn't hesitate to let Carol inside of their home. Don went outside into the darkness to see who had been following her. He said a sedan pulled up in front of their home with the interior lights off and the parking lights on. Carol identified the car as the one that had been following her. Because it was dark and the car's interior lights were off, Don was only able to make out two silhouettes, but no descriptive features beyond that. The car sped away before he was able to copy down the complete license plate number. The Neals called the police, who did show up, but gave the impression that they were more troubled by the presence of a black woman in their town after hours. With nothing else left to do, like maybe escorting the terrified young woman to her destination or patrolling the area as she walked to the gas station to reunite with her co-workers or giving her a ride, the police determined that their work was done and went on their way. Norma said she begged Carol to stay the night with them. She and Don advised her that the gas station was quite a walk from their home, and they had concerns about her arriving there safely. According to Norma, Carol finally relented and agreed to stay before suddenly changing her mind. I've bothered you people long enough, Carol said before departing, being true to her nature of not wanting to impose upon anyone. Sometime after nine that night, the phone rang at the home of Elizabeth Davis. The caller asked if she was Elizabeth's mother, which she confirmed. The caller's next words were, We found her on the ground. She's dead. Initially, Elizabeth thought the call was a sick prank before one of her other daughters took the phone and confirmed that it was real. Elizabeth said she remembers nothing after that point, but her son Robert remembers what he described as a god-awful scream that came from his mother's bedroom. Carolyn Easton was watching the news when she saw the sickening and heartbreaking sight of her niece's books strewn across the sidewalk. She said the sight affected her so badly she had to leave town to stay with her sister. Paul Davis learned of his daughter's murder 
from one of his other children. Daddy, Carol got killed. Carol's dead. She got killed in Martinsville. The next day, Paul would put his own safety on the line and break a promise to himself of never returning to Martinsville when he had to visit the county coroner. Carol had made it to the corner of Morgan and Lincoln Streets, just a block away from the gas station. She was discovered collapsed on the sidewalk in the rain by a teenage boy who ran to a nearby restaurant to call for help. Carol died soon after arriving at Morgan County Hospital, 33 days shy of her 21st birthday. The killer had punctured her heart with a single stab wound. The Davises have said from the very beginning that their daughter's murder case was botched. Because the Martinsville Police Department did not have a detective, and although the county sheriff and state police were brought in immediately, it wasn't soon enough. To begin with, Carol's stab wound wasn't discovered until after she'd passed away at the hospital. Authorities claimed they didn't know the sidewalk where Carol had collapsed was a crime scene. They failed to tape the area off, resulting in the murder site being heavily contaminated. A detective with the state police said that when he arrived, there were about 50 people gathered. One person handed him Carol's glasses, and another handed him her notebook, which they'd picked up half a block away. Police did track down a sedan with two teenage boys who admitted to following Carol, but denied harassing her. Several people were questioned, but there were no leads. Carol's family said the police failed to include them in the investigation, or more accurately, shut them out. The people of Martinsville didn't seem to want to talk, unless it were among themselves. Out-of-town journalists found that to be particularly true, with an Indianapolis reporter saying that, quote, the town became a clam. I got the impression real quickly that there was something funny. After a while, we learned that nothing was going to happen. And if somebody knew something, they were afraid to talk. It cooled and cooled until it was futile. And after a while, the whole thing just petered out, end quote. For someone who never lived in Martinsville, Carol will always be associated with Martinsville and it with her. If there had been any doubt around Martinsville's status as a sundown town that had no love for Black people, all doubt was removed on September 16, 1968. It has also been known as the place to avoid while traveling along State Road 37 if you're Black, and especially after dark. Don and Norma Neal reported that their decision to help Carol the night of her murder was not well received among the townsfolk. They were met with questions about why they even bothered to get involved in the first place. The Neals were also on the receiving end of harassment, which involved vulgar phone calls, to having their door kicked in. Additionally, 
the couple became the target of death threats. There was a time when Don's father had to sit on the porch all night to keep his family safe and the threats from coming to fruition, all for being the ones to assist a lost, scared, and hunted woman who happened to be Black. Despite having a history as a hotbed of hatred, the people of Martinsville resented their racist reputation. Now, it seems to me, and I could be wrong, I could be wrong, but it seems that they hated the reputation more than they hated the acts that earned them the reputation, because not much changed throughout the years. In 1998, a football team and their fans from a rival high school were greeted with racist slurs such as darky and nigger, much like Larry Davis and his teammates 30 years before. The more things changed, the more they stayed the same. Also in 1998, Carol's adoptive brother, Philip, by then 30 years old, shared with their sister, Laura, that not only had he met people who knew who was responsible for Carol's murder, but that he, he had visited their home where they shared details of the murder. And what's more, everyone in Martinsville knew who killed Carol, but for whatever reason, Paul stopped short of providing names or revealing any other details that would lead to those responsible for Carol's death. In the year 2000, Paul hired a former state trooper working as a private investigator to look into his daughter's case. This coincided with the Indiana State Police assigning two detectives to re-examine Carol's case full-time. For the first time in 32 years, Paul was able to establish trust in law enforcement after they convinced him of their sincerity. In 2002, Sandra Chapman, an anchor with an Indianapolis news station, had been doing feature stories on the new investigation. Sandra received a lot of feedback from the community in response to her stories. One day, while listening to phone messages, she got one that she never expected. The caller was a woman, and her message said, If the girl had a yellow scarf and was killed with a screwdriver, my father could be the killer. Shirley Richmond McQueen was a little girl when she was riding through Martinsville with her father Kenneth Richmond and an unknown man. She said her father, who had a pronounced dislike for black people, and the other man, spotted a young woman walking alone and in the dark. The two began shouting racist slurs at her. Obviously frightened, she quickened her pace as they pursued her in their car. They got out of the car, chased her down, and laughed as she literally ran for her life on the rain-slicked street. Soon they had her cornered like a hunted and trapped animal. The unidentified man grabbed their victim, who stood five feet three inches and weighed little more than 100 pounds. 
pinning her arms behind her as she was held in place to prevent her from fighting or fleeing kenneth richmond plunged a screwdriver in her heart while insulting her with racist vulgarities shirley recalled seeing her fall to the ground the two killers got back into the car and as they drove away Shirley looked back at the woman, lying motionless in the rain, taking notice of the yellow scarf that she'd so carefully picked out earlier that day. The car ride was accompanied by the laughter of the two men who'd just taken the life of Carol Jenkins for no other reason than being black and being in the wrong place at the wrong time. She got what she deserved, Kenneth Richmond laughed. Upon returning home, Kenneth let his daughter know that what had happened in Martinsville was their little secret, and to keep their little secret, he gave her hush money in the amount of $7, $1 for each year of her life. Nearly 34 years later, in May 2002, Kenneth Richmond, then 70 and living in a nursing home, was arrested and charged with the murder of Carol Jenkins. Just when it looked as though Carol and her family would finally receive justice, it would elude them once more when not even three months later, Kenneth succumbed to bladder cancer. In what turned out to be a bittersweet victory for the Davis family, many in Martinsville saw the arrest of Kenneth Richmond as a sort of vindication. As Mayor Shannon Buskirk said, a burden had been lifted, not only for the family, but for his town as well. He was quoted as saying, it's a great day for Martinsville. Though the majority of the town was relieved that Richmond had never resided in Martinsville, there were a few who understood the arrest did not clear the conscience of the town. Remember that there was another car that followed Carol, which the driver admitted to but stopped short of admitting to harassing her. I guess she just made that part up. And before Shirley McQueen left that message for, for Sandra Chapman, her former sister-in-law had made calls to law enforcement, stating that she knew someone who witnessed Carol's murder, but her claims were not followed up. So this murder was an open secret that could have been solved sooner and brought justice to the family. The following is an excerpt from an article on the aftermath of the arrest. Quote, even though they did not know her killer, there were some people who felt guilty about Carol Jenkins' murder. Mary Ann Land was a junior at Martinsville High School in 1968. Last week, Mrs. Land, age 50, spilled out years of pent-up emotion in a letter to the town's newspaper, The Reporter Times. In 1968, there were people in this town who hated black people, 
If you weren't one of them, then you knew someone who was. It might have been a neighbor, or it might have been your grandpa or your Uncle Bob. I've also lived with the fear that I could have known the person who so brutally killed Carol Jenkins. He could have been my neighbor, or he could have been a relative of mine, she wrote. But dare I say, in 1968, most people who lived here could have come up with someone they knew who might have had that kind of anger or rage to do something so despicable. My grandpa was a bigot. He had a terrible temper. What if it had been my grandpa? But she went on to say that she is not a bigot, and she resented being labeled one for all those years just because she was born there. Now, I think that Marianne's letter is very telling. Coming from someone born and bred in Martinsville, it speaks volumes. People were so relieved that Kenneth Richmond wasn't from Martinsville. But as Marianne pointed out, there were still many people there who, because they were so bigoted and filled with hate, they could have done the same thing. And I understand Marianne and others not, you know, them being resentful of the fact that they've been branded racist just by association. But remember the saying that evil triumphs when good men do nothing. So let's fast forward to today, 2021. Where does the case stand and what has been the impact? The case is considered solved and has been closed, despite there having been two people involved in Carol's murder. The other person has never been identified, and unless someone gives a deathbed confession, probably never will. If they were the same age as Kenneth Richmond, who was 70 back in 2002, there's a good chance they're deceased anyway. We just don't know and probably never will. However, Don and Norma Neal stated in a 2013 interview their belief that the wrong man was arrested for Carol's murder. They felt emphatically that another man who followed and harassed Carol was the murderer, and due to his ties to the mayor and chief of police, his crime was covered up. Now, while this goes against Shirley Richmond McQueen's revelation of witnessing her father murder Carol, the fact is there was another person that she was unable to identify. So there could be some truth to what the Neals stated. At some point, either in the aughts, so 2000 to 2009 or the 2010s, the Neals led an effort for Martinsville to memorialize Carol. The mayor at the time felt it wasn't appropriate. Martinsville had suffered far too long with labels of racism and intolerance, and it was time to move on from the painful reminders. Let the past stay in the past, was the sentiment. In November 2017, Carol was commemorated at Martinsville City Hall. A memory stone was presented to her family by Mayor Shannon Cole. Among those in attendance at the dedication ceremony was Carol's co-worker, Paula Bradley Harris. I've always wondered what her experience in Martinsville was like. I know she had some reservations about returning even 50 years later, 
but I'd really like to know. She had been dropped off in a different part of town, so I would just like to hear her story and the impact that this has had on her because Carol's fate very well could have been Paula's. Donald Neal, who dared to help a black woman being hunted in his all-white town and was met with hateful backlash from neighbors, died in November 2020 at the age of 70. In January 2016, Carol's brother Larry, who was the last family member to see her alive and who carried the guilt of being the one to coax her out of bed, passed away at 65. And in April 2018, Paul Davis, who loved Carol in life and fought tirelessly for justice after her death, passed away. Paul took from his retirement savings to finance the fight for justice when he saw law enforcement's lackluster effort. When citizens of Martinsville would try to claim to be victims as much as Carol and her family, Paul never failed to remind everyone that it isn't about them, it's about my dog. Thank you so much for joining me for episode three of Black Missing and Missing. Be sure to visit Black Missing and Missing on Facebook and Instagram. Like, follow, comment, and you can also email me at blackmissingandmissing at gmail.com. Next time, we'll journey to East Texas and delve into the search for right. As always, be safe, be aware, be vigilant, and we'll talk next time.